Welcome to the North Star Unplugged Podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged Podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, everyone. It's Kristen. Welcome back to North Star Unplugged. Today, I'm here with Naomi Darling, an architect with a background in environmental and structural engineering, climate change science, ceramics, and sculpture. In addition to her own architecture and design practice, she's also an associate professor of sustainable architecture in a shared position between Mount Holyoke College and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Naomi, welcome to the show. Hi, Kristen. Great to be here. So I'd love to start with uh, growing up in a bicultural home. Uh, Both your parents were art historians. Can you share a little bit more about your parents and what they were focused on? Yeah, sure. My mom is Japanese, um, and her area of research was French Romanesque churches. Um, And then my dad, who's American, is a Japanese medievalist, and he was his sort of primary research area was Shinto mandalas from the 12th century. So, you know, immediately you can tell that there was an interest in each other's cultures, a shared interest in the arts. And so growing up, we, you know, my parents are both still grad students when I was born. And so I remember, you know, going to France when I was nine for about six months of field work for my mom. We traveled around France and visited. It felt like every single, you know, French Romanesque and Gothic church in our little Renault 5. Um, but, you know, I was nine. I turned 10 that summer. And when you're a child, I think your memories are just so much bigger in a sense. You know, time is longer than it is as an adult. Um, and so, you know, I still remember many of those churches. I remember it very sensuously. You know, I remember the temperature change as you walk in. I remember the echo of your, my, you know, walking on the stone. Um, there's a darkness and a dampness in the, the, some of those old stone uh, cathedrals um, that I think will always be with me. And then, you know, before that, uh, when I was seven, eight, nine, we actually lived in Japan for two years when my dad was doing his dissertation research. So then, you know, I actually went to a Japanese public elementary school. Um, I had to learn Japanese because I had, it was my, actually my first language, but then I f- forgot it a little bit um, as my mom was learning English. But then we moved to Japan going to public school, you know, became what I was, I was very, it was what I lived in, in Japanese. And so we lived in a 
Japanese home in a neighborhood. My grandmother still lived in the house that my mom had grown up in over a store and sort of a very um, quintessential street in old Tokyo called Kappabashi, um, so part of old Tokyo Edo. And uh, my grandparents on my mom's side were shop owners, and they were on a big street that uh, catered to the restaurant industry. So my grandfather sold, you know, pots and pans and plates and uh, cutlery uh, to restaurants. So, you know, I still have, you know, very clear memories of visiting my grandmother and in her home, and we would go up a flight of stairs. And it was organized in such a way that half of the apartment was quite traditional with all tatami mats, um, sort of a veranda with a, for plants and gardens that overlooked the street, um, sort of an alcove for the butsudan, it was called, where there was a photo of my grandfather, whom I never met. And then on the other side of the corridor, you know, it was a little more Western um, with like a dining table and sort of couch and coffee table. Uh, so a little more Western. And so, you know, I think even at that young age, moving from, you know, Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we had been to uh, Japan, you can just see the difference in the way people live and how that's manifested in, in their living environment. And now you're in Massachusetts where you've just experienced a blizzard. And uh, of course, I'm here in Bozeman wondering where the snow is and when it's ever coming. <laughs> uh, and I know you're on sabbatical this year. Um, what are some of the pros and cons of being on sabbatical during COVID? Well, I think I'll start with the pros. Um, you know, the kids are both remote. I've got two sons. Uh, they're seven and 11 right now. So my seven-year-old is in second grade. My 11-year-old is in sixth grade. And so um, being on sabbatical just gives me a lot more flexibility to be here. Um, and I guess even if I was teaching, I'd be teaching remotely right now. But it just takes a level of stress off in terms of everything that needs to be managed right now. So I'm thankful for that. You know, it's, um, I think we've all had to reconsider what this year has been. And so, um, you know, travel plans that I had thought would happen this year with my sabbatical, you know, haven't happened. And so it's really been about trying to find opportunities closer to home. Um, you know, with the family discovering areas, you know, walks and hikes really close to where we live that we just never had gotten out to before. And then even professionally, just trying to focus my own practice, you know, locally. So that's something I've been wanting to do and, you know, not wanting to fly and not really traveling. It's, it's really, um, it's been a perfect opportunity to do that. In, in a normal year when you're not on sabbatical, um, what would your schedule look like as far as dividing time between your own architecture practice and then your teaching of architecture at Mount Holyoke and at UMass Amherst? So I'm on a 2-2 teaching schedule, which means I teach two courses each semester. I teach design studios. Um, so every fall, I typically teach the senior studio at UMass. 
And then I teach a intermediate environmental principles studio at Mount Holyoke. Um, and then in the spring, I've been teaching a foundation studio at Mount Holyoke. And a, I've just started teaching a design build studio because we've recently completed a make, uh, the Fimble Maker and Innovation Lab, which is a sort of a great makerspace facility at the college. So um, I've had two, two years now teaching the, the design build class. And I want to come back to that, um, but for some other questions to dig into, what are some of the pros and cons of a joint appointment between two schools? I actually really love it. Um, and, you know, so Mount Holyoke and UMass Amherst are part of something called the Five Colleges Consortium, including Hampshire College, Amherst College, and Smith College. So there's five schools really within like a 30-minute driving radius. Um, and every school is very different. Every school sort of attracts a slight uh, different demographic of student. And architectural studies is a shared major between Mount Holyoke College, Hampshire College, and Amherst College. And so um, I usually have students from multiple campuses in my classrooms. And for the studio context, I actually think it's really fantastic because, you know, the different students have different strengths that they bring into the classroom. Um, and, you know, I've been able to somehow work with the students in such a way that they really motivate each other. Motivate each other. So, you know, to be really specific, um, the Hampshire, Hampshire is ungraded. I don't know if you know too much about Hampshire College. I do, but, a little bit. Yeah, so Hampshire was founded in about 1970 um, as an alternative, with an alternative educational model. And so, you know, there's no grades. It's all written evaluations. Um, and students are have to divine, design an independent course of study. Um, within that, there is a they, Hampshire participates in the sort of five college architectural studies major. But the Hampshire students tend to be uh, risk takers in a sense. They don't necessarily follow instructions um, quite as well, but they definitely take risks. Um, Mount Holyoke College and Amherst College students are better at following instructions, um, you know, and doing the drawings and the models. Um, and so, you know, the Hampshire students help the Mount Holyoke students and the Amherst students maybe be uh, take a, a few more risks than they might otherwise. And the Mount Holyoke students and the Amherst students, you know, sort of show the Hampshire students that, you know, it is actually really important to do the different drawings and models and there's a reason for it. So I think actually having them in the same classroom makes everyone's work stronger. Um, and then, you know, UMass is an accredited architecture program. So we have a full, you know, undergraduate program and a master's program. Um, you know, I've got a great set of architect colleagues at UMass at Mount Holyoke College um, in a department that's an art history and architectural studies department. So my colleagues are all art and architectural historians. And so I really appreciate, you know, being both part of an accredited architecture school as well as part of a liberal arts art history department. So for me, it's really perfect. So it sounds like there's a lot of differences in the, um, just sort of the 
attitudes or, or, or learning styles uh, and, and culture of some of the students coming into these courses, some of them in the same class since they're sort of cross-registering, do you also find um, differences since Mount Holyoke is all women and UMass Amherst is co-ed, a difference when you're going back and forth teaching at those two institutions, just a different energy in the classroom because one is uh, all women and one's not? You know, I don't, I think because it's a five college major, um, I don't know, maybe only once have I taught a class that had only women in it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So while most Mount Holyoke students, while most Mount Holyoke classes might be, you know, all female identifying students, my classes have typically always had um, a few you know, male students from Hampshire and or Amherst enrolled at the same time. Got um, it. But generally I find, you know, Mount Holyoke is a small liberal arts college. And one of the things I've found at Mount Holyoke is it's a very supportive um, academic environment. So, you know, the students I think are very supportive of each other. And I think the, uh, univer- the college is very supportive of us as faculty as well. So, um, but, you know, I would say the same at UMass. I am part of a very supportive faculty um, at UMass as well. It's a much bigger, it's a much bigger school, you know, and so um, I think because of that, I don't know, I think the architecture school is sort of a small, you know, subculture family within the larger UMass community. I know you recently got tenure. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> so th- this past, past spring, before your sabbatical started, what was it like to teach architecture remotely when the lockdown began? Well, that was challenging. It was definitely challenging. Um, you know, architecture studios are very hands-on. You're developing models. You're marking up drawings. And I was teaching a the design build class and a foundation studio. And so, you know, the design build studio, we had to pivot completely um, because we were going to be building built-ins for the lobby, uh, built-in sort of display exhibition for student work that's made in the Fimble Maker and Innovation Lab. And so being remote, we couldn't do that. You know, a big part of that class is for students to gain experience designing, translating those design through um, a detailing and construction process using all the tools and equipment. And so we couldn't do that. Um, We ended up, I ended up having those students design and then make uh, face shields, um, you know, as part of just to support what was happening um, with COVID and the shortage of PPE that was experienced in the spring. Mm -hmm. And so we actually collaborated with Smith. There's um, an intro and an advanced studio at Smith. The intro studio there made face masks. And then the advanced studio there was doing research and graphic presentations on sort of the history of um, pandemics and um, like ventilators and different technologies. So, and it's all going to be going up on a website uh, soon. Cool. We'll <laughs> yeah. have to check that and out. Yeah, and then my foundations class um, was hard in a different way. 
you know, we had spent the first part of the semester doing a lot of the early making exercises, spatial exploration exercises that I have my students do thinking about, you know, light and shadow and um, modularity and skin and structure. But we were right at that point where we were going to start drafting, hand drafting. I always start with pencil on paper still. Um, even though so much of the profession is in the computer, because I really find that it's hard to learn scale and line weight um, on the computer. And so I still start with, you know, drafting boards and pencil. And we weren't able to do that um, because students were, they had to go home pretty suddenly in mid-March and not, not all the students had, you know, a space where they could even set up a drafting board. We couldn't send drafting boards home with the students. So I did send them home with drafting kits and they were able to maybe draw on their desk with, you know, the triangles and rulers, but it's, it's a different experience. So I did en end up introducing drafting on the computer uh, in the spring. But, you know, some, the concepts of orthographic projection, which is, you know, uh, plans, sections, elevation, sort of the abstraction of how you communicate three-dimensional objects on a two-dimensional plane can be a little tricky to grasp. And so it's really different to be, you know, marking up someone's drawing on the computer and to be doing that in person. And you also had an interdisciplinary course that you co-taught with an anthropologist professor as well? Yeah, that wasn't last, that wasn't fortunately, you know, last spring. That was a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I used to, when I first moved up, when I first took this teaching position, I was actually in a three-way share. So I was at Hampshire, Mount Holyoke, and UMass. And then there were three of us in these shared positions. And so we ended up s trading and swapping some of our quarters. Um, but at the time I was, also teaching at Hampshire. And so it was a Hampshire College course that I co-taught with Sue Darlington, who's an anthropologist. And um, it, was, it was an experimental year-long course that was sort of prompted by the Roddenberry Foundation, gave a grant to Hampshire College, challenging faculty to develop courses in sustainability, uh, coming at it from three different disciplines. And so uh, they invited interested faculty to dinner and I happened to be sitting across the table from Sue and we started talking. And so, you know, in, the initial conception was it would be architecture, anthropology and ecology. Um, and so we had an ecologist on board who ended up leaving Hampshire that summer, but we had a partner um, from Thailand. We ended up working. Sue's a, an uh, anthropologist who has worked in Thailand for, you know, decades at this point and had longstanding relationships with um, an NGO there that works with farmers to promote uh, seed sharing and small-scale organic integrated farming. And so she's been working with this NGO for many, many years. And so they were the uh, NGO that we ended up collaborating with through the course uh, to work with them to develop um, a seed market and cafe and gift shop, um, seed library on their property, develop designs for it. Have those yeah. been built since then? 
Not yet. Not yet. Mm. That was one of the things I would have done this year on my mm. sabbatical was I was hoping to spend some time in Thailand, mm. you know, working with them to take that project to the next step. But um, we're in communication. And so hopefully, you know, once things get back, we'll be able to pick that back up. So your, your title is explicitly in sustainable architecture. And I'm curious, for how many years have Mount Holyoke and UMass explicitly designated the sustainability component you know do those do those schools have other professors who teach architecture that's not specifically called out as sustainable so the the the, my description was developed um back in 2012 or 2011 i guess is probably when they posted the ad Um, and so i think at that time there was a posting for sustainable architecture. I think more and more every architect, every architecture professor is teaching principles of sustainable design. And so in some ways, you know, we can probably take that out of the title because I think everyone is, is really doing it now. Um, but I think it's in there in some ways marking the time at which the position was created. Um, it was a position created, you know, for the five college major um but there are others i mean everybody really incorporates sustainability to some degree well it certainly seems like a perfect fit with with you know your commitment to sustainability and climate change how did you um how and when did did your interest in in that emerge so all through college i was really wavering you know between majoring in architecture and majoring in the sciences. When I was in high school, um, I was, I did a summer work experience, a young scholars research experience. It was called the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And I worked in a thin films engineering lab at Northeastern. And then at the end of that, Um, they asked if any, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I applied for the uh, Antarctic research experience. Um, And I was, you know, selected uh, nationwide with four other students around the country to participate in that. And through that experience, I was partnered with a sea ice physicist up in New Hampshire who was um, at the Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory in Dartmouth. And so... Um, a student, uh, Brett from San Diego, and I were both paired with Steve Ackley, who was the sea ice physicist. And so, you know, I ended up working with Steve for three years, I think, maybe, let's see. So the summer I graduated in 91, I, worked, I went up to Crowell and worked with Steve, was introduced to the lab and his research the summer of 92, I went down to Antarctica. The five of us young scholars all went down with our uh, principal investigators. So, you know, I worked with Steve uh, that summer in Antarctica researching uh, climate change. Um, and when we came back, I went and worked in the lab, sort of following up, doing some of the data analysis and collaborating on some papers. I worked with him again in 93 and then in 94 I actually went back so I worked with Steve you know over a period of four years so all through college you know like during the school year I was I decided to 
uh, transfer into the engineering school, and I did the joint architecture civil engineering degree with Professor Billington. Um, but then every summer, I was working with Steve Ackley on climate change and sea ice research. So I was sort of carrying both of those sort of threads all through college, unable to decide, you know, what I wanted to do. <laughs> So I'd love to to stick with the undergrad years, um, which is, of course, you know, how, how you and I know each other. Um, so you majored in architecture, but then you, you, you said that you, you know, you also partway through thought there'd be a benefit of studying structural engineering. Can you share more about that thought process? Because that seems like that was fairly unusual at that time, correct? Yeah. Um, so I guess my freshman year, I think, I don't know if you remember, when you applied at Princeton, you either applied to the liberal arts or to the engineering school. And so I had applied to, you know, the liberal arts undergrad major. And then my freshman year, I t- took a architecture, sort of architecture 204, it was the introduction to architecture class that Liz Diller taught at the time. And I took a geology class. Um, because I was really, wait, you know, deciding between those, those were the two areas that I really thought I might major in. And I just loved my architecture studio. I loved the way um, the, the projects just expanded the way I thought and saw, thought about things and saw the world in a sense. It was really, you know, a very important class for me. And so, I, and I just loved, you know, translating all of these ideas through making things spatially. And so... Um, so I decided I wanted to major in architecture. And then at Princeton, you know, there were two routes to an architecture major. One was through the liberal arts college with a lot of uh, studios and art history, architectural history and theory courses, or through the engineering school. Um, and I decided, I think maybe partially I felt like I, had been around art history my entire life. I felt like that was something I was somewhat familiar with. Um, I didn't have too much exposure to engineering except for the summer uh, internship I had done. I'd always, you know, really loved my physics classes, my math classes. I had geometry class in high school that I really loved. And so I felt like that was something I wanted to learn more about. And I felt like it was important for an architect to understand how the buildings work as well. Um, so, yeah, so I transferred into the engineering school um, in the second semester of my freshman year. And uh, Professor Billington was sort of a trailbreaker in, you know, developing a joint program in architecture and structural engineering. I think it's, it was very unusual at the time, still very unusual. And you'll find many people who teach structures and architecture schools have somehow been impacted by Professor Billington. So w- when you did your Princeton thesis uh, work on the South Pole Station, it was recognized with the highest thesis award in the School of Engineering. Can you share a little bit more about that project? And was that related to the work uh, with climate change that you were mentioning earlier? Yeah, so the thesis, as you know, is sort of the culmination of your undergrad experience at Princeton. And so I really wanted to find a thesis topic that would combine, you know, I sort of felt like I had these two pathways through college of my architecture and engineering being pretty separate from what I had been doing in my summers working in the Antarctic and working with Steve. And I wanted my thesis to somehow bring those two threads together. 
Um, so I ended up working there. At the time, there was a competition for a new South Pole station. The, at the time, the existing South Pole station was a geodesic dome that had, was getting crushed from snow from snow drifts. The snow doesn't melt at the South Pole. And so the snow would drift and accumulate and accumulate. Um, and it was failing. And so they needed to de design and rebuild a new South Pole station. And so I decided to take that on as my senior thesis project. And, you know, I felt really strongly that any design for the South Pole really needed to design with the climate conditions. So design with the wind and understanding that the snowdrifts weren't going to melt, you know. Um, <clears throat> and so I ended up working with a Professor Jean Prevost who was doing uh, computational fluid dynamics modeling. And we adapted his code for DynaFlow to transport and drop snow. So we figured out a way to, you know, couple snow in the comp in the computer model to the wind and then to drop the wind when the wind velocity fell below a certain point and could no longer carry the snow. And in that way, we could model where the snow would drift. And, you know, that was really important because the reason that the South Pole Dome had failed was because of snow drifts. And so, you know, initially starting the year, my idea had been, oh, I'll get this model figured out and then I'll design you know, I'll design something and be able to iterate to develop a design proposal that would work with the snow drifting. It turned out that, you know, just figuring out how to make snow fall out of the wind ended up being a pretty significant thesis project in itself. So I didn't get to too much design. You know, I got to like section profiles of, you know, what would work. Um, but, but yeah, so that was. My, my, thesis, my undergrad thesis project, and in a way, I feel like I'm still doing, you know, not quite as technical now, um, but really thinking about designing with climate, with, you know, even the environmental principles course I teach is so much about designing with climate. In the South Pole Station, how was that actually used? Like, how, how big a structure are we talking about? And is anyone sleeping in there, or are they strictly using it for, um, you know, data collection? Yeah, the South Pole Station is an international uh, research station and scientists from around the world it, um, come and live and work there. And, you know, they many scientists and support personnel winter over. So, you know, Antarctica is dark, you know, for our summer, their winter, um, there's days when the sun doesn't rise. And so, you know, those scientists are wintered over there for the winter. Um, so it also needs to be, you know, a place that allows, you know, allows for privacy, allows places for gathering, it's home as well as work, you know, for the uh, scientists and staff who are living there. So did, did they rebuild the structure? Yeah, yeah, they did. They did. Um, uh, Ferrara and Troy, a firm in uh, Hawaii, ironically, ended up being was the architects for the project. And um, what they did was they, it's almost like an airplane wing, you know, that's on um, stilts that can 
raise, they can raise the whole structure on sort of like on jack pylons so that the snow can drift underneath and it accumulates down downwind of the structure. So so I'd love to uh, fast forward to, to after college um, when you spent time as an assistant scientist on a 125-foot schooner working for Sea Education Association. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, so when I was in college, I took a year off after my sophomore year. Between my sophomore and junior year, I took a year off. The beginning of that year off, I did a semester with SEA. Um, and, you know, it was partially, I had met a friend down in uh, Antarctica, uh, Deirdre Byrne, who was an oceanographer. She was a grad student. And we sort of had this idea that we wanted to sail across the Atlantic together. And I had never sailed, period. You know, so it was like, well, if, I'm, if we're really going to do this, I need to learn how to sail. Um, and so in some ways, that was my motivation for wanting to do the semester at sea. Um, but then I was also, you know, interested in uh, the science and the oceanography that could happen on the boat. And so I did the summer semester uh, in the summer of, I guess it was 93 um, with SEA. I was on the westward. We sailed up to... Uh, Nova Scotia to Lunenburg and back down over the Grand Banks. That was just as the cod fishery was collapsing. Um, and so, you know, the way SCA works is everyone takes three classes, sort of a marine science class, a maritime history class, and a nautical science class. So, yeah, so I, I, I loved it. Um, some, I guess... One of the things with nautical science that I think I still really carry with me is the celestial navigation. And so, you know, by, by knowing where the sun and the moon and the stars are, you can locate your position on the Earth's surface with something called a sextant. And so that was something that, you know, I just thought was the coolest thing. And so that's something that I really got into, uh, you know, when I was on the boat. And I think that's, Partially why, you know, I still have my students like design functioning solar clocks for my environmental principles class. In 2011, you launched your own practice, Naomi Darling Architecture. Um, when do you have time and mental space uh, for your own projects uh, with all of your teaching and, of course, your family, etc.? So most professors have to write books. Um, well, professors in the humanities have to write books typically. Um, you know, as, as college and university professors, part of our, our expect, work expectation is to have a body of research. Um, in my case, my body of research is my professional practice. And so, you know, an English professor would be researching Shakespeare or Kipling or, you know, um, other writers and writing about them. A science professor would be running a lab and publishing articles, you know, so I run my practice and complete projects. And so, you know, there's sort of time uh, allocated in a sense to one's research. And so for me, my research is my practice. And what type of projects do you focus on? 
You know, I do a quite a big range of projects. Um, after uh, after Princeton, I did a master's in sculpture in Australia. And so, you know, my work ranges from the sculptural to, you know, more conventional architecture projects. You know, architecture projects can take years, you know, depending on the scale of project. Um, I've got a project in Japan now that's a memorial hall for Inazo Nitobe. That was a competition, gosh, uh, quite a number of years ago now. And, you know, I won the competition. They're still fundraising for that project, you know. So some architecture projects can be, you know, five, ten years between, you know, winning a competition or the initial ideas and initial design phase before a project is actually realized. Um, and so I think because of that, I appreciate having, I'll just have a couple things going at a time. Um, in different stages so there's some projects like that that are sort of on the back burner now and then other projects that you know are maybe actively in design or actively in construction the most active project that I'm working on is actually adapting a shipping container for my husband Daryl Petit Daryl is a sculptor and he works down at the historic uh, Stony Creek Granite Quarry in Bramford, Connecticut it's a pink granite um, something that many people in the country have seen because it's the base of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it's all over New York City, Boston, up and down the East Coast, really. But it's a, you know, a pink granite. Um, and so he's typically spent Thursday nights. He goes down. The quarry is about an hour and a half, two hours from our home now, where we are in Massachusetts. So he commutes down, and he would typically spend one night a week down there. Um, so the plan all along had been for us to adapt the shipping container so he could spend one night a week there instead of at the motel. Um, with the start of COVID, he stopped staying at the hotel. And so, and now it feels even more sort of urgent that, you know, we finish up the shipping container so he has a place to stay down there. The container has had a couple lives. So a couple years ago, we collaborated. There was a uh, XTCA Crosstown Contemporary Art Exhibit. <clears throat> that was a collaboration between the town of Amherst and UMass Amherst. Um, <coughs> and so uh, we had adapted the shipping container by putting in a skylight, which we knew we wanted eventually for Daryl. And then we made the shipping container itself into a big solar clock. And so that was, um, you know, a project that was inspired in part by the project that I give to my students that was, like I said, inspired in part by, you know, the celestial navigation that I was involved with on the boats. Um, so, yeah, so right now we are the shipping container phase two, which is um, the pied a terre for Daryl in the quarry. And we've just put in the two glass sliders, we've insulated it, and we're about to put in the, uh, the we had milled uh, using a CNC, which is like a robot-controlled router uh, clock interface. Um, and we're using all of those panels as one of the walls. Um, and then the other wall is gonna be sort of cedar that wraps up and has sort of a built-in daybed, uh, twin bed, and you know, counter area.
pretty Sounds simple. amazing. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be nice. It's been fun. So, you know, one of the things about being on sabbatical is I have time. I enjoy the process of making uh, myself sometimes. And so, you know, I don't often do it, but this is a small enough project and uh, I've been enjoying, you know, the, the build process. And you've done temporary installations also? Yeah, so that was, you know, a temporary project. It was, uh, it was up for, you know, about six months, I guess, in front of the Fine Arts Center at UMass. Uh, we had, you know, both doors of the container open. And, you know, we had set it, you know, in one of the busiest parts of the campus. So that people, it would divert people slightly off their pathway and um, and they could experience this, you know, it's a bright orange shipping container on the Fine Arts Center Plaza. So definitely a destination. We marked it with the latitude and longitude. The doors were sort of locked in the open position with ramps, you know, for accessibility. So you could ramp up, go in, and you'd see this milled surface with a beam of sunlight coming in and hitting it. The interface was marked with tick marks so that you could interpolate the date and the time, you know, based on where the sunbeam fell. And, you know, it was really a way to connect people with uh, the heavens and the sun and where we are on the Earth's surface, the seasons. Sort of, you know, you could see very visually a pattern of the sun um, through this milled surface. So understanding sort of those patterns of nature um, in a very physical, visceral way. I know that prior to founding your own practice, you worked at an architecture firm uh, first in Seattle, Washington, um, where you focused on institutional, public, and residential work. Can you share one or two takeaways from your time there? Yeah, I worked at the time. The firm was called Olson Sundberg Kundig Allen Architects. Um, they have since, you know, uh, split into a couple different firms. But I loved working there. It was a a great practice. It was growing quite uh, quickly when I was working there. Um, I think that was the first place where I think I could really imagine myself in this field for the rest of my life. And I think it was, you know, at Princeton, I loved the ideas and the way of thinking. Um, I think in Seattle, working at Olson, Sundberg, Kundig, Allen, um, I just loved the whole, I loved everything, I think. You know, I think my colleagues, a lot of architecture firms maybe in New York City particularly, but globally are sort of notorious for just making people work crazy hours. And that wasn't the case um, where I was. You know, people would come in and work really hard, but then, you know, people would, you know, go hiking or kayaking or, you know, after work or on the weekends. And so there was a nice uh, work-life balance there. And there were so many really interesting projects going on in the office. And I think the office did a really great job of um, the office culture there was such that everyone felt involved in much more than only their own projects. So you had a sense of everything that was happening in the office, projects at all different stages. We had weekly um, office critiques where a different project team would present their project and where they were at, and everyone could sort of give feedback and comment on it. 
Um, so for me, it was just a, a really nice insight into a profession um, where people could be engaged in this creative work, you know, working on, they had a really nice mix of projects from, you know, single family residential to multifamily to institutional um, for academic institutions as well as museums and whatnot. So I just really appreciated that mix. I think that's still sort of the ideal mix of project type that, you know, I'm striving for in a sense. Were you tempted to stay longer in such a, an appealing environment? Yeah, I love Seattle. Um, I think part of me knew I always wanted to teach as well. And so when I was, you know, applying to grad schools, I actually sat down with a professor at the University of Washington, um, Steve Bedanes, who teaches a design build course out there. And I said, you know, I love living in Seattle. Um, I think ultimately I want to teach and practice. You know, do you have any advice for me kind of thing? He's like, well, if you want to teach, you know, it wouldn't hurt if you went back to one of those East Coast schools. <laughs> um, and, you know, you never say never. At one point I had thought I, I would never really want to go to uh, New Haven and Yale. I, I don't know if you recall, but so back when we were applying for undergrad, New Haven wasn't really the safest town in which to live. And so I sort of felt like it really wasn't a place I was interested in. But when I was doing my grad school sort of tour in the fall, trying to figure out where I wanted to apply, I visited Yale and, you know, I just had such a good positive impression of it. And uh, Yale, it just felt like a really strong community, collaborative community of students and professors. And then they do something called the Yale Building Project, where the first year MARC 1 architecture students collaborate with a nonprofit that builds affordable housing in the city of New Haven. Um, and the first year students, you know, work together to build, build this house. And that was something that was really exciting for me. So I ended up going to Yale and I really loved it there. And then after grad school, you ended up moving to Tokyo and worked at another architecture firm? Yeah. So after grad school, um, Daryl and I, because I got married, um, you know, uh, between my second and third year of grad school, Daryl and I relocated to Tokyo for, it was, in the end, it was about half a year. Um, I worked for Kengoku Mine Associates. I was attracted to his firm because you know his practice is you know very contemporary but also uh traditional in a sense you know his use of materials his sensitivity to light um has a very nice sort of japanese sensibility to it that i was really attracted to um and interested in this play of light and shadow um material use and so yeah, and it was really interesting to go work for uh, Kuma's office and, um, you know, very different way in which the office was run than, um, you know, the, the firm that I was at in Seattle. Um, Did you consider staying, staying longer in Tokyo? You know, I think I did. I did. Um, there wasn't a whole lot for Daryl to do there. And so Daryl, you know, we were in a tiny apartment in Tokyo 
and I would commute like an hour by subway each way. And there, you know, I did encounter the crazy world of architecture where I'd often be like running to get the last train home at like 12, 12.38 a.m. You know, I still remember. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, like Daryl would have been home alone, you know, in this like tiny apartment. He had an exhibition um, at the Ikeda Gallery um, in Taura that fall. And so, you know, a lot of the fall he was preparing for the exhibition. Um, but once the exhibition was over, um, there wasn't as much. And then his dad actually had a stroke. And so he really wanted to come back to be closer to his dad. And I was also looking at licensure and, you know, I could get credit for, I think like six months, um, working internationally with a U.S. licensed architect and the project manager that I was working under was a U.S. licensed architect. But beyond that, um, I really needed to get my my hours here. And so it was sort of a combination of things um, that sort of motivated us to come back. So in addition to your master's in architecture from Yale, you also have an MFA in sculpture, uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, from Monash University in Australia. Can you share a little more about uh, the type of sculpture you were focused on during your MFA? Yeah, so in Australia, I was really focused on installations, Um, you know, so installations within gallery spaces. I was really interested in trying to capture the space of a journey and travel um, within a gallery context and also bring to light uh, some of the ecological, I guess, an experience of the ecological systems within the Australian landscape and out back into the gallery context. So that was sort of the larger goal I had set for myself. Um, You know, so my final thesis um, exhibition there, in a sense, was, you know, I had a big gallery and, you know, in my time there, I had tried to travel quite a bit. What drew me to Australia was the desert, um, the Red Desert. And I had read this book by Bruce Chatwin called Songlines. I don't know if you read anything by Chatwin. Yep. Um, did you read Songlines? I, I've, I, I think I've owned that book. I don't think I've read it, but I've, I've have several books of his. Uh, but I can't, yeah. remember, I can't remember if I've read Songlines or not. It's, uh, yeah. I could have put Songlines on my list of three books, actually, that I sent you. Um, because Songlines, you know, he talks about uh, the Songlines are the songs that the song lines the songs that the aboriginals of australia sing the country and the land into being um and so so i really so it was sort of song lines by chatwin and then being in antarctica two of my colleagues down there had been living in tasmania and had just come back from a trip to the red center And so listening to them talk about their trip to the Red Center and the red sand dunes and looking out at the snow, you know, the the snowscape around us, I sort of drew these parallels in my mind and I felt like I had to see it. Um, And so while I was there, I did a couple trips up to the Red Center and then a trip across the Nullabar. Uh, Nullabar is, you know, no trees, so a white sand desert. Um, and, and just some amazing landscapes, but, you know, my exhibition was trying to capture the experience of that, those journeys within the gallery space. 
the fragility of the ecosystem. It's super interesting. Um, I know that, you know, while you were in Japan, you had a chance to apprentice to a potter and, and also to a ceramic sculptor. Um, what were some of the learnings from that magical time? Which is, it's amazing you had time when you were, you know, at your architecture firm till 1230 at night. It's amazing you were able to do these other things. That's fantastic. Uh, maybe what were a couple of Oh, that wasn't, I, I did the uh, apprenticeship with the ceramic, with the potter and the sculptor on that year off I took from Princeton. Oh, gotcha. Totally different, totally yeah, different time. Yeah. Okay. So it makes more sense that you'd have more time. Yeah. Then. Yeah. So that year, you know, the, I did the semester at SEA. I went up to um, Krell and worked a little bit with, with Steve Ackley. And then I went to Japan in around October and I worked with, the, with the Hamadas, who um, the husband and wife couple team who ran a pottery in northern Kyushu. And then I worked in Hagi with uh, Miwa Sensei, and he was a ceramic sculptor. Um, and then, you know, at the end of that year, I went to, back to Antarctica. Um, so, you know, lessons from that year, you know, that was the ceramics in particular. You know, I really wanted to learn how to throw on the wheel. Um, and it's one of those things you just have to do it and do it and just do it every day, you know, to get good at it. And um, uh, just like, like anything, you know, in life that you want to get good at, you just have to do it. And so, but it helps if you're doing it with someone who really knows how to do it and can help you along the way. And so Mr. Hamada, you know, was really... Um, an incredible thrower, and um, so I learned so much working there. But it was just there's just something so satisfactory about you know shaping clay in your hands um, and seeing it rise on the wheel, and you know your your fingers learn to communicate with the clay in a way. So it's something I actually haven't done now in a number of years, and something I really want to bring back into my life. How has your experience in sculpture informed your work in architecture or vice versa? You know, I think it's partially um, materiality. Um, you know, I really do think at the, at the detail of how different materials come together. And I think that stems in part from my background in sculpture, where, you know, you are getting so close to things. And so the first project I did as an architect was a tea house for the Kernans in uh, Branford, Connecticut. And that's, you know, it's architecture, but it's, it's almost at the scale of big sculpture. Um, you know, I did that as a, des that's the, I, I also did that project as a design build. I hired two carpenters to work with me and, you know, we, um, you know, cut the cedar, everything was notched there, notched uh, cedar with, some bolts, but um, no, so just the way that materials come together to create the space as a whole, I think is something that comes from uh, the sculpture. So much of what I was thinking about in the sculptural work I was doing was about the body moving through space and the interaction of the body with these physical forms in space and how your perception changes as you move past them. And that's so much an architectural experience. You know, so, you know, how do you um, approach a project? How do you walk through and move through a project? You know, how does the light impact 
um, you know, the experience of the space over time? You know, what are your views as you're moving through that space? Those are all ideas that I was exploring in the sculptural installations I was doing and are all very much part of how I think about architecture. It seems you've had so many experiences in studies and creative pursuits and work that were uh, outside of architecture. How critical has this interdisciplinary approach been to shaping, you know, who you are today and, and, and how your work presents itself? I think it's really important. You know, I think architecture really is um, an art that is so encompassing. And so I think that's really one of the reasons why I really love teaching in a liberal arts context. You know, my students are double majoring in geography and sociology and French literature. And, you know, architecture is ultimately where so much of life unfolds. And so whatever you can bring into the way you think about space and architecture and habitation, um, I think only makes for a richer architecture. Um, I know that was, I feel like my, you know, it, it was all fear, you know, I guess outside of the field of architecture, but in so many ways, you know, my time on the ship, my time in Antarctica, you know, doing ceramics, it's all really had an impact on how I practice today. And I think um, it contributes to, you know, my unique ability to contribute, but I think everybody, you know, as they're able to draw from outside the discipline, it just makes the discipline stronger. So as we, as we wrap up today, I just have two final questions. Uh, first, how can folks learn more about you and your work? Well, I guess a good place to start would be to go to my website, um, www.naomidarlingarchitecture.com. And I have there, you know, some projects, some uh, projects photographed and descriptions and, you know, definitely reach out and uh, get in touch if anyone wants to discuss anything with me further. Awesome. And do you, in addition to song lines, uh, can you share any book recommendations for our listeners? Yeah. So uh, Cradle to Cradle is, I think, was an important book for me. It came out in the early 2000s when I was working at the firm in Seattle. And it's really um, a model of architecture and design that thinks about designing for the present, but then also thinking about what happens, you know, after the life of the current building um, or really it's all design. So thinking about all design, not as being sort of a, a, a linear street, but as a circular, um, circular economy, circular use of material. Um, so I think that's a really important book. And um and then another one is uh, In Praise of Shadows uh, by Tanizaki. And he was a Japanese uh, writer, novelist, essayist. But he writes really poetically about um, how Japanese aesthetics have embraced shadow. Um, so, you know, you can see light better with shadow. And so, you know, understanding that, you know, in many ways the eye sees contrast. And so... Without shadow, it's hard to see the light. Um, 
And so, you know, I think it's a very short book. It's only about 40, 45 pages, but it's quite poetically written. And so that's one that I often have my students read as well. Um, and then a third book, you know, that, um, that I would recommend is, it's an adventure story. It's uh, Adventure, The Journey of Ernest, uh, of Shackleton on the, on the, on his boat, the endurance. And it's just an incredible adventure story. It's a story about leadership. I don't know. Do you know the story of Shackleton and his sort of attempt to cross Antarctica in early part of the 1900s? Yeah, I, I have endurance on my bookshelf. Yeah, it's a fantastic, you know, it's a fantastic read. Um, but I think there's some amazing lessons about leadership and teamwork and, um, you know, making sure that no one's left behind. And so um, those are all books that I think I really love that I'd recommend. We'll definitely include all those in, in the show notes. Um, Naomi, thanks so much for taking the time uh, today to, to be with us and share all of your amazing experiences. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you, Kristen. And thanks to everyone for tuning in today. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and for all others at northstarsleepschool.com slash podcast. Uh, thanks for subscribing and for leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and for sharing this podcast with a friend. If you have any feedback to share with me directly, you can reach me at Kristen at NorthStarSleepSchool.com. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.